Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to be part of a people who have the hand of God leading them and directing them. Lord, we thank you for what you have done in this great movement of people. Father, we thank you for your patience with us as we slowly learn the truths of your word. This morning, Father, our prayer is, as David prayed, that you would lead us in your truth. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to be with us here. We pray that you would guide us in the time that we spend together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've gone through the last two studies in this three-part series, we have looked at three points from the Word of God. And these are three particular points that the, uh, those that are of a more anti-Trinitarian persuasion tend to not agree with. What we have found from Scripture is that the Bible teaches that there is a unity of three persons in the Godhead. We looked at that in our first presentation. Many Bible passages support the threefold aspect of God in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And after we solidified that from Scripture, we then went to the spirit of prophecy, which confirmed our findings in the Word of God. In our study together last week, we looked at the last two points here, the full eternal deity of Christ, that he has always existed as part of the Godhead, and the personhood and full deity of the Holy Spirit, that he is not an energy or a force of God, but that he is a person who has always existed just like the Father and just like the Son. Again, we looked at all of the biblical evidence that supports these two things, and then we went to the spirit of prophecy that confirmed our findings. Now, those, again, who are of the, uh, some of the anti-Trinitarian persuasions tend to believe that at some point, Jesus was created in the distant past at some point. That, um, that there is not three, there's not a threefold aspect of the Godhead, uh, and that the, the Holy Spirit is a force that comes from the Father and from the Son rather than being an actual literal person. We have found that the Bible teaches something quite different. This morning, what I want to do is I want to show you from the history of our church that uh, we have always, well, not always, but for a good period of time, we as a people have believed what we have studied in the Word of God over the last two presentations. And I want to show you that this happened not just in the recent history, but also during the time of the great, our great prophet, Ellen White. Now, just as a disclaimer, um, most of the, or much of the information that I'm going to share with you this morning I have borrowed from an Adventist historian by the name of Jerry Moon. You can look him up if you choose to. He's an associate professor and the chair of church history department down at Andrews University. Uh, he did a two-part series. So I'm just going to do one. But he did two-part series, hour-long presentations, showing the development from a historical standpoint of this particular doctrine of the Trinity. He also co-authored a book entitled The Trinity, Understanding God's Love, His Plan of Salvation, 
connection and Christian relationships. So this is where I've got much of my information. I've got other resources that I've pulled from as well. But I wanted you to know where a lot of the information was coming from so you can go back to the resources yourself if you would like to. The next thing I want to state before I get into this is I want you to just hang tight with me. We're going to be reading a lot of quotes this morning. I know sometimes when you get into quotes, it's easy to get disconnected. But in order for us to see this from a historical perspective, I want you to see what the writers themselves actually wrote rather than me regurgitating in my own words what they said. Now, it is no secret in the Adventist church that there were many of our Adventist pioneers who were what some define as anti-Trinitarian. And this is just a, uh, a brief list of some of these individuals, James White, Jane Andrews, Joseph Bates, A.C. and D.C. Bordeaux, R.F. Cottrell, A.T. Jones, D.M. Canwright, W.W. Prescott, J.H. Wagner, he was the father of E.J. Wagner, and J.N. Loughborough. And I'm going to share with you some of the statements from these uh, particular individuals, but many have defined these men as anti-Trinitarian in their persuasions. And some of them were, of course, stronger on this than others. Those that came from the Christian connection, uh, James White and some of the others, uh, definitely had more of an anti-Trinitarian leaning. But we actually see over history that they began to change that view, and I'm going to share that with you here in our study together this morning. However, not all of our pioneers were anti-Trinitarian. There was some, although they were few, that were Trinitarian. There's a man by the name of Ambrose C. Spicer. He was the father of the G.C. president, A.W.A. Spicer. He was a convert to Adventism from the Seventh-day Baptist Church, and Baptists were Trinitarian, and he carried that with him over into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And actually, his son later wrote that his father grew so offended at the anti-Trinitarian atmosphere in Battle Creek that he actually ceased preaching for a period of time. It was a very strong persuasion um, of anti-Trinitarian belief that was down in Battle Creek at a certain time, but this began to change over time. Now, I want to just kind of share with you a thought here that's something for you to keep in mind if you ever run into somebody who is of an anti-Trinitarian thought, and it's this. Just because the pioneers believed in some anti-Trinitarian beliefs is not evidence enough that we should also believe the same way. Historically and for always and forever, we have been a people of the book. Amen? Irrespective of a a person's position in the church, whether it be current or in the past, their beliefs do not dictate what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists. What dictates what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists is what the Word of God says. So even though there were some, even what we might consider prominent pioneers in the Adventist church that were anti-Trinitarian, this is not enough evidence for me to believe the same way they believed. The only way that I would believe this way is if it's taught in the Word of God. And we've seen in our last two studies that clearly the Word of God does not teach these sentiments. So I want you to keep this in your mind if you ever run across somebody because it's a very weak reasoning for us to follow the uh, founders, if you will, of our church rather than following the Word of God and the Word of God only. So we ask ourselves the question this morning, why did so many of the pioneers subscribe to this particular view of the Godhead? Well, I want to share with you just three reasons this morning. There are others. 
want to share with you three reasons why they subscribe to this view. And what you're going to actually find out is what they thought of as the Trinity is not actually what the Bible teaches. Here's one of them. The first reason why they subscribed to this view was some thought that the, that the Trinity made the Father and the Son identical, one in the same, one and the same person. <clears throat> Listen to this statement from Joseph Bates. He said this, Respecting the Trinity, I conclude that it was impossible for me to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, was also the Almighty God, the Father, one and the same being. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists, yes or no? No, we don't believe this way. Now, this was a, unfortunately, it was a misunderstanding that Joseph Bates had on the Trinity doctrine, that the Trinity made the Father and the Son the same exact person. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, he wasn't praying to to himself, he was praying to his Father, who was a distinctly separate person from himself. So, of course, if I were Joseph Bates, and if this is what was being taught as the Trinity, I would be opposed to it as well, because this is not what the Bible teaches. It was an unfortunate thing, but it was, he was condemning a false understanding of the Trinity doctrine. Here's another reason why some objected or rejected the Trinity. Uh, some thought that the doctrine of the Trinity taught the existence of three gods. J.N. Loughborough made this statement in 1861, if Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are, this, are each God, it would be three gods. Now, let me ask you another question. Is this what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists, yes or no? No, this is not what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists. We are not polytheistic. We are monotheistic. We believe in one God. We worship one God. We believe what the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But we believe that Godhead is made up of three individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not just because we want to believe it that way, but because that's the way it's outlined to us in the Word of God. So again, it was a misunderstanding of the Trinity doctrine that they were opposed to, as we see here in this second point. The third reason why they objected to the doctrine of the Trinity is some thought that the doctrine of the Trinity would diminish the value of the atonement. It would diminish the value of the Tumah. Some of the pioneers reasoned that since the everlasting, self-existent God cannot die, that if Christ had possessed self-existence as God, he could not have really died on the cross. However, Ellen White makes the statement very clear of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. And she says this in Manuscript uh, 131. She says this, Deity did not die. What didn't die? Deity did not die, humanity died, but Christ now proclaims over the rent sepulcher of Joseph, I am the resurrection and the life. This language can be used only by the what? So did deity die when Jesus went into the tomb? Did his God side die? No, it didn't. It was the human side. It was the humanity that died when Christ went into the grave. So I think it's clear here that although many tout that the pioneers were anti-Trinitarian, 
what you actually find is that their concept of the Trinity was not really what the Bible teaches. They were against a misunderstanding of the Trinity doctrine, and I think just about every good Seventh-day Adventist would object to the same things that these men objected to in these three objections that I shared with you this morning. They condemned a misunderstanding of the Trinity doctrine. Now, after a period of time, this was from the um, early four, uh, 1840s on, um, there, there, there grew to be a dissatisfaction with the concept of anti-Trinitarian, anti-Trinitarianism. Um, and that rose around the mid to late 1800s. They began to become a little dis, uh, disinterested or dissatisfied uh, with this idea. In 1869, Ellen White published an article entitled The Sufferings of Christ. I haven't finished the whole article, but I read a good part of it, and it's just outstanding. I would encourage you to read it this next week at some time in your devotional time. You can find it in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 200 and 200 to 215. Uh, but anyways, in this article, it was uh, perhaps the first time that a prominent Adventist pioneer clearly contradicted anti-Trinitarian doctrine. Listen to this statement that she made on page 200 of Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2. She said, This Savior was the brightness of his Father's glory and the expressed image of his person. He possessed divine majesty, perfection, and excellence. What does she say there at the last part of the quote? He was what? He was what? He was equal, she says, with God. This really struck a blow at the foundation of anti-Trinitarian doctrine because Jesus, being a created being at some point by God the Father, made him subject to the Father in anti-Trinitarian thought. In the last page, the last paragraph of this, uh, of this article, page 215, she says that Jesus, he was eternally rich, she says, yet for our sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. He was, how long, how, how long was he rich? Eternally rich. So this began to give the idea that the anti-Trinitarian belief that was prominent among many Adventist scholars was, at least in Ellen White's mind, not scriptural. In 1876, perhaps one of the most prominent anti-Trinitarians in the Adventist church was James White. But in 1876, he began to change and soften this view that he had of the Godhead. Listen to this statement that he wrote in Review and Herald, October 12th of 1876. James White made this statement. Um, and, and just so you know the background, what he was doing in this article, he was comparing between Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists. He was comparing between the two uh, denominations. And he made this statement, Adventists hold the divinity of Christ so nearly with the Trinitarian that we apprehend no trial or conflict here. Isn't that interesting? So as time developed, Ellen, or, uh, James White began to change his view or his perspective on the Godhead doctrine. The next year, uh, James White wrote in 1877 that Christ was what with God? 
Now, it's interesting that perhaps he began to change his views as a result of some of the visions that Ellen White was receiving on this concept of the Trinity. Now, I'll be be honest with you. If you read Ellen White's writings early on, you will find that there is ambiguity when it comes to the understanding of the Godhead. But as you progress over time reading her writings, down towards the end of her life, she only gets clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer until she makes these very dogmatic statements about the Godhead, where she refers to the heavenly trio that is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She's very clear on who the Godhead really is. Now, you might also find it interesting just as a little historical side note, that in 1849, when James White compiled the first Adventist hymnal, in 1849, in that hymnal was something that we sang this morning. We refer to it as the doxology. And at the end of that doxology, what does it say? It says, that we, uh, where's my notes here? It says, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So it's interesting that even in the 1840s, James White was not opposed to the idea of the Godhead being comprised of three persons in the fact that he kept that song in that compilation of that early Adventist hymnal in 1849. So in about 30 years, James White began to change his view drastically from what it was to uh, more Trinitarian persuasion, if you will. Now, it appears in the late 1800s that the word Trinity, uh, according to some of our writings, was no longer considered a taboo word. Here's an interesting little side note. In 1892, one of the church's publications, it was called Bible Students Library, published a tract entitled the Bible Doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this, again, this was in 1892. And interestingly enough, this particular article was written by a Presbyterian minister. I don't know why, but it was published in an Adventist publication, and it carried with it this word that has kind of, in some circles, become uh, something that you avoid, the word Trinity, again, published in our Adventist publications. This represented a significant warming in Adventism to not only the term, but also what it defined, that the Godhead was made up of three distinct individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a progression that began to happen in the late 18 to 1900s. Uh, There was a progression of thought on the subject of the Trinity from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. And this progression of thought was largely led Ellen White was the one who led the charge on the progression of thought. And the book that perhaps did more than many of her other books or articles was the book Desire of Ages that she wrote. Again, it was compiled or published in 1898. And this book really struck a blow at the root of anti-Trinitarian persuasion. Let me share with you a few statements that are in this inspired writing. On the first, in the first chapter, on the first page of the first chapter, so the very beginning of the book, Ellen White makes this very dogmatic statement. She says, from the days of, from the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was 
Now, this left the anti-Trinitarian pioneers scratching their heads. How could it be? If Jesus was a created being in many of their minds, how could it be that from the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father? She makes this statement very clear here that not only was Jesus eternal, but that he was with the Father from eternity past. Uh, Later on in the same book, commenting on Jesus' statement to Martha, Lazarus' sister, when he said, I am the resurrection and life. You remember that statement, right? Standing before the tomb, I am the resurrection and life. Right before he called Lazarus from the grave, she pens this historic statement that we read last week on page 530, that in Christ is life, what does she say? Original, unborrowed, and underived. And then she says this, the deity of Christ is the believer's assurance of what? That means that if Jesus is, is, not, is not eternal or if he does not hold deity, that we do not have the assurance of eternal life. And listen to me clearly this morning, brothers and sisters. If Jesus was created, he is not divine. He is not God in the sense that he has always existed and has all power. Jesus was, uh, he is as much God as his Father is God, as the Holy Spirit is God. He has always existed. He will always exist. And it's because of that fact that we have assurance in our eternal salvation. But she makes this statement so clear that in Christ is life original. It was original to him. It was unborrowed and it was underived. Now, there was an Adventist pioneer by the name of M.L. Andreasen in 1909 who visited Ellen White at her home in St. Helena, California. He went there on a mission, and you can read this uh, if you would like to in the book, Without Fear or Favor. It's a book chronicling his life. But he went there because he was not convinced in his mind that some of the statements that Ellen White wrote, he was not convinced that she actually penned them. In his mind, he thought, how could somebody with a third-grade education write such exquisitely beautiful pieces of literature? How could she make such deep theological statements if she only had a third-grade education? So he was determined that he was going to go out there and see for himself if she had really penned these words or if it was just an editorial adjustment that was made on the behalf of of somebody else. So he knocked on Ellen White's door. He was cordially invited to come into her home, and he was given access to the White Estate vault. And for days, he poured himself over these passages that he wanted to know. Did she really write them herself, or were they editorial changes that were made later on before they were published for the public? This is what M.L. Andreasen said, commenting on this passage here in Desire of Ages, page 530. This was one of the statements that he wanted to see. Did she actually pen this, or was it some change that was made later on? He says this, especially was I struck with the now familiar quotation in Desire of Ages, page 530, in Christ is life original, unborrowed, and underived. He goes on and he says, this statement at the time was what? Revolutionary and compelled a complete revision of my former view and that of the denomination on the what? This just threw the denomination in a tailspin, if you will, this statement. 
many of the uh, many of the thinkers in the denomination were going in this direction on the deity, and then Ellen White makes this one sentence statement about Christ's divineness, and it completely upset the apple cart, if you will, and caused a complete revision of not only Emil Andreessen's view, but also that of the denomination. This statement in uh, Desire of Ages is a huge statement. Christ did not get life from anybody else. Christ did not get life from anybody else. He did not have it delegated to him from the Father. It was original to him. If Christ is not divine, as I mentioned before, we have no assurance in our eternal salvation. Listen to this statement from Desire of Ages. She continues, Desire of Ages, page 785. She says this, The Savior came forth from the grave by the what? By the life that was where? It was unborrowed. He had it. It was in himself. That life is, according to her, and I believe she's correct, what brought him forth from the grave. So these are clear Trinitarian statements that are being made in the book Desire of Ages. This just really hit at the root of anti-Trinitarian persuasion. And what you will find is after the publication of the book Desire of Ages, you will find that not only Ellen White makes dogmatic statements that are Trinitarian in nature, but also the pioneers, and I'm going to share with a few of them here with you in just a moment, made clear Trinitarian statements in their theological writings. Not only did she write about the life of Christ in the book Desire of Ages, but she also wrote about the Spirit of Prophets, or uh, sorry, the Holy Spirit. On page 671, Ellen White made this statement, sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the what? Of the Godhead, right? So again, she's placing the Holy Spirit as the third person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being the ones who make up the Godhead. There's a clear progression of thought that is taking place here in Adventism. From relative ambiguity to greater specificity, they're getting more and more pointed on their understanding of the Godhead in Scripture and also in the writings of Ellen White and other pioneers. Now, in the wake of these statements in the book Desire of Ages, Listen to what some of the early Adventist pioneers had to say. This is uh, from Uriah Smith, 1896. He made this statement. In the formula of baptism, the name Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is associated with that of the Father and the Son. And if the name can be used thus, why could it not properly stand as part of the same Trinity in the hymn of praise, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Isn't it interesting how, as you see, as a result of Ellen White's writing in the book Desired Ages, there began to be a change of thought in the minds of the pioneers as well. Listen to this. This is another one from a uh, Adventist periodical, the Union Conference Record, July 19th of 1909, made this statement. There is a trinity, very dogmatic statements there, and in it there are three personalities. <clears throat> These divine persons are closely associated in the work of God. We see a shift that's beginning to take place here in the mind of many of the writers 
in our periodicals, not just Ellen White, but others as well. S.N. Haskell made this statement uh, in Haskell's Bible Training School Journal. He said this uh, in, what was it, uh, 1910 he made this statement. Uh, He said, the Holy Spirit is represented in the Bible as one of the Trinity. Isn't that an interesting word that he uses there? Of the Holy Spirit, Christ said that it proceedeth from the Father, and he shall testify of me. In many incidences in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is spoken of uh, by the use of the personal pronoun, he and his. From this we could conclude, or we conclude, that the Holy Spirit is a personality, it is evident that the Holy Spirit is one of the Trinity and fully represented, represents God. Now, don't get caught or sidetracked by this statement that in, you cannot find in the spirit of prophecy where Ellen White uses the word Trinity. That's true. She did not use the word Trinity. She preferred to use the word Godhead. But the word Trinity was clearly used during Ellen White's lifetime, and she did not condemn it. Okay, so it's majoring in minors when we start getting caught up. Yes, I know that there's some theological baggage that comes with the word Trinity, but it has been redefined from a biblical perspective. We allow the Bible to define what that word means, and then we use it in that sense. Ellen White did not have any problem with that in our publications. She did not condemn the use of the word Trinity. In fact, I'm part of a group on Facebook, and I'll leave the name unmentioned, but it's the, the, the purpose of the Facebook group is to discuss this, this very point, the, the subject of the Godhead. Uh, and there was a statement that was made on, in, on there, one of the comments, that the pioneers never used the word Trinity. Is that true or False. I've just, I mean, I had to leave some of the quotes out. I mean, there's just, there's, there's so much evidence that contradicts, but there are statements like this that are being thrown around that if you don't know what the history says, you could be caught off guard and get swept away by a cunningly devised fable that is not historically or biblically accurate. Yes, the pioneers did use the word Trinity, and Ellen White did not have any problem with it. So by the uh, early 1900s, the Trinity became a more accepted term in our publications. Uh, as I've already stated uh, prior to that, you've, you've seen some of these quotes here by our pioneers making uh, use of the word Trinity. But there was a major shift that happened, and I want to outline this for you here this morning as we kind of wind this down. In 1913, There was a man by the name of F.M. Wilcox, who was the editor of the most prominent periodical in the Adventist church, known as the Review and Herald. And in this, this particular article in 1913, it was October 9 of 1913, F.M. Wilcox writes an article entitled, The Message for Today. And in there, he makes this very interesting statement. He says this, The Seventh-day Adventist believes, number one, in the divine trinity. This trinity consists of the eternal Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, 
the third person of the... Now, what you may find very fascinating, I have this whole article, I have the whole issue, uh, this whole issue of the Review and Herald, October 9 of 1913. And you might find it interesting, at least I do, that the article that happens to be run right before F.M. Wilcox's article, where he uses the term Trinity, was written by Ellen G. White. You find that interesting? So Ellen White's article, she has her article, it's a beautiful article, and then F.M. Wilcox's article where he makes this dogmatic statement here that Seventh-day Adventists believe in the divine trinity. Do you think Ellen White read that? I mean, I can't prove that she did, but I would think that if she had an article in the publication that she probably looked at what was around that particular article or the issue itself. And again, as I've stated before, that many times the term was used in our, by our pioneers and Ellen White did not take issue with the use. Although she did not use it herself, she did not take issue with, the others, with other people using it in their writings. Now, in 1930, something very fascinating took place. The African division... As you know, the church was beginning to grow quite extensively at this point. In fact, in this Review and Herald uh, issue uh, of 1913, as you go through it, most of it is about foreign missions, the growth of the church in foreign places. It's, 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 it's very beautiful to take a look at that. But anyways, the African division, <clears throat> they came to the general conference and made a request that the Adventist church print a statement of beliefs that would help them in the foreign field help government officials, quote, help government officials and others to better understand uh, our work. Okay, so this was in 1930. They made this request. So the General Conference, in response to this, they appointed a subcommittee of four men to put together this statement of beliefs. The next year, in 1931, this statement of beliefs was released. It was not formally voted on or anything like that. It was just released uh, for those people in foreign fields. But the person who was tapped up to write the article, to write the statement of beliefs, was none other than F.M. Wilcox, the guy who wrote that statement in the Review and Herald that we just read a few moments ago. He was the leading writer among the four men that were part of this subcommittee, and he drafted a 22-point document that summarized the basic beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, why am I telling you this? Because in there, he has a statement, the second point of the 22, he refers to the Godhead or the Trinity, and in the third point, he affirms that Christ is very God, just like the Father and just like the Holy Spirit, Jesus is also Part of this Godhead. Now, this is interesting history because even still today, the second fundamental of the 28 fundamentals now is what? I read it to you in our first presentation. The second fundamental is the fundamental doctrine of the Trinity. So this goes all the way back to the 1930s to a man who wrote this, these 22 points, and it was approved by that subcommittee to be released into the foreign field for them to be able to use in various ways. F.M. Wilcox was the one who 
began this idea of the fundamental beliefs. Now, in 1946, just several years later, it was officially, these 22 points were officially voted in at the 1946 General Conference session, and was uh, part of that, obviously, was embracing this fundamental belief of number two, the doctrine of the Trinity, and number three, of Christ being, part, being God uh, as part of the Godhead, if you will. So this is where we begin to see the formation of our fundamental beliefs. It happened in the 1930s, and then it was officially voted in 1946, and this is where we find the first, first official endorsement of the Trinitarian view by the church. Now, this is where a lot of anti-Trinitarians get their steam from. They say that the, the Trinitarian belief was embraced by the church after Ellen White died. Now, it's true that it was officially voted after Ellen White died. But history confirms without any ambiguity that this doctrine was in development and was spearheaded by Ellen White long before she passed away. Okay, so again, it's a misunderstanding of the historical evidence and also the biblical evidence and also the spirit of prophecy evidence that we have at our disposal. It's a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of these things that lead to this conclusion that the church changed after Ellen White to a Trinitarian view rather than an anti-Trinitarian view. It's just not supported in the history or in the spirit of prophecy. So let's conclude this thing here. And I want to be honest with you as we wrap this up, that as we consider the Trinitarian view, as we've studied it in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, let us be honest with ourselves even the Trinitarian view that we have studied is not perfect. We are dealing with a very complex subject here. It's a very deep and extremely complicated subject that we are trying to grapple with, and we just can't completely understand the Godhead, right? We just can't completely understand it. We're not going to completely understand it. We're going to have questions while we are here on this earth. Those questions Perhaps we'll be given more greater clarity or better understood when we get to the kingdom of heaven. But maybe there will be some questions that will never be fully understood because, again, after all, we are talking about it's a complicated subject, and even what we have studied so far is not perfect as we grapple with its extreme complexity. But I want to tell you something from my perspective. And you can hang me up if you want to on this one, but this is my perspective. As I've studied in preparation for this three-part series, obviously to do this, I have to read and, 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 and do some little investigation on the other side. It's never fair to just look at one side. You've got to look at both sides. Now, I have chosen in my presentations to just present what I believe is biblical and, and supported in the spirit of prophecy. So I haven't gone into the arguments so much. Uh, I just wanted you to see what the Bible had to say. But what I have noticed in my, in my research and from my perspective that this anti-Trinitarian view is not heaven-born, and the fruit tells you everything. You don't even need to investigate the doctrine. 
All you have to do is investigate the fruit. And the fruit is readily available and accessible. As you look at the fruit of anti-Trinitarian doctrine, it is divisive. It is dividing the church. It is taking people away from what Ellen White tells us is the object of God's supreme regard, the Seventh-day Adventist church. That is evidence enough in my mind that it is not a heaven-born doctrine or a heaven-born belief. The fruit of this movement is, uh, is, is pulling people away. It is weakening the church. I've heard of churches out west who have been completely decimated by this teaching of anti-Trinitarian views. We have churches in our own conference that are weak and struggling now because of the presenting and the confusion that it is left in the minds of God's people. We must know from the Bible where we stand on these particular points. It reminded me as I was uh, wrapping up this study of the passage in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12, where the Bible says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having, having great wrath, because he knoweth that his time, uh, that he hath but a short time. Is Satan happy with God's church? Does he love the object of God's supreme regard? What does he want to do to God's church? He wants to pull it apart. He wants to weaken it. He wants to destroy it. He wants to divide it. And anybody who has studied war tactics understands that the way you weaken the enemy is by dividing the enemy. And so so Satan has brought in these divisive views. If he can't get us caught up in the world and worldly ideas, he'll say, okay, let's confuse them theologically. Let's get them arguing about theology. And so he gets them arguing about theology, and the camp becomes divided, and there's not the unity that God wants among God's people. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, the Bible tells us that Satan's specific object of attack is God's church, right? He has great wrath. Not only does he have great wrath against the world, but he has a great wrath against God's church, and he is coming against God's people to cause dis. Unity, and I'm sad to say that in some camps he's been successful. And listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. He may not be successful in causing disunity on the Trinity doctrine in the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church. But he can, if we allow him, become successful in other areas to cause disunity. He'll just keep trying. If this one doesn't work, he'll try this one. And if this one doesn't work, he'll cause this one. If that one doesn't work, he'll try another one. He will push his way in any way he can to try to bring in disunity among God's people. If you see disunity beginning to creep in, you can know that that's not God working. That is Satan that is working to try to divide and weaken God's church. The truth unites. Error divides. So my word of encouragement to you this morning or my appeal to you this morning is this. Let us do everything within our, divine, with our, within our human power in cooperation with the divine agencies to see to it that God would bring harmony and unity into our church. Not compromising the truths to have unity, but, truth, uh, but unity that is based on the truths of God's word. Would you say amen to that? Lord, bring that unity in my life. 
Bring that unity in my family. Bring that unity in my Sabbath school class. Bring that unity into my church. Bring that unity into my fellowship. Lord, let us have the unity of the faith. May John 17, the prayer that Jesus prayed, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Let that prayer be answered here in the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church. And if it is answered, God will breathe great power into this church that the enemy of souls will not be able to resist. Amen? May God help us to that end. That is my prayer. Let's pray together as we close. Loving Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given to us a rich history. And we thank you, Father, that our history isn't just beautiful, but that it agrees with the Bible. And Father, this morning as a church, we come before you as a church family, and we pray that, Lord, you would keep us united in the truth, that we would press close together, Lord, that we would not allow the enemy of souls to bring in divisive ideas that would divide and weaken our energies for you. Lord, keep us on the straight and narrow path. And Lord, I pray that as our light so shines, that others would see Jesus in us, and that they would, that they would say, I want what they have. And that doors would be open, Lord, in our community that we know nothing of at this point to be able to share the precious gems of truth that you have blessed us with. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.